0: your Bibles, the book of Titus chapter 3. The third chapter of the book of Titus is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, just moving through this book, we've got about one more message left after today uh, in this series. And so Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So while you're turning there, let me just make mention as well of another announcement. Some of you, many of you are probably already aware of, but our children's pastor Jeremy Young and his wife Amber uh, had their third child just this week on Thursday. Uh, Leighton Gray Young, their new daughter, uh, was born. And so for those of you that weren't aware of that already, go ahead and- and begin praying for them, and uh, I told him that it's a little different raising girls than boys. I'm not going to say whether that's good different or hard different. I'm not going to say, but it is, uh, it is just a real, real blessing, and uh, I know they are so excited, and, um, and so just be praying for them in the days ahead with all the adjustments that come, but they are really, really happy and excited and thankful for the way God has blessed them. Titus chapter 3. This morning, we're going to look at a message simply entitled, Disunity disunity. Now, one of the things that I love about preaching through, uh, books of scripture is that you can deal with difficult topics and it not be as though you're trying to just, you know, pick a fight or select that particular passage for any underlying reason you deal with the passages as they come and what you do is you just trust that there's a reason individual pad you go through that book in the first place and there's a reason for the timing of actually coming to each of these individual passages and so this morning is going to seem to some degree like an odd passage you know it's going to be like well is he trying to communicate something special yeah yeah, i am because it's in scripture but i can say that god has given us a great unity here for many many years god has just blessed us that that is only because of god and his grace and his favor it's one of the things i think that is one of the great marks of this particular church and this ministry, and that's a commendation of you guys that God has blessed us with unity. However, we can't coast, right? We can't ever take anything for granted, and we have to keep our, you know, keep our head on a swivel, so to speak, because the enemy is always alive. The enemy is always at work And we need to be aware of that. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture there in chapter 3 that is a, a very pointed passage of Scripture. It's a very direct passage of Scripture. And for us, we'd be really, really wise to pay attention to what it says and at the same time to apply what it says as well. Well, many of you are sports fans. I love sports. I played sports for a long time and I follow sports. You know, I've got my bracket, for example, right, for March Madness. Got my bracket out there. Not doing so well, but, uh, but I'm hanging in there. I, I'm, my champion is still on the board. So, uh, so I'm trying to, trying to hang in there, but I love sports and one of the, one of the great uh, takeaways from sports, uh, whenever you play it or if you've ever followed it, watched it, or whatever, participated in it at all, is that it is a great, great concept that communicates the benefit and the blessing of team. You know, you can't play sports with just an individual mindset. Virtually every sport is a team sport. Now you may say, well, what about golf, right? There's one golfer out there. Well, at the college level and at the high school level, it is a team sport. You are playing for your own score, but you're also participating as part of a team. And so whenever you look at sports, it is a great way to teach this concept, this mindset of team and the value of being a part of a collective group of individuals, a collective group of people that are pulling their share of the load as well. And what you understand there, whenever you're part of a team, is that team chemistry and team unity is a very, very important thing. There have been many, many teams in name only who have participated, they have competed, and yet they had all of the best collections of individuals, right? They had a collection of all-stars as individuals, and yet they never could find their chemistry, they never could come together as a team. That has happened on the high school level, the college level, the professional level, in virtually every single sport, that there has to be a unity there. There has to be this mindset of being unified, whether it's in baseball, whether it's in football, whether it's in basketball, virtually any other sport, you have to have a mindset of team. You know, the old slogan, right? They put it on all the t-shirts, right? There's no I in team. And that is true. Some of you are spelling it out right now to make sure I'm, I'm being accurate, but there is no I in team. And that's just a simple reminder that we have to operate collectively as a group, not just a collection of individuals. Whenever you come across an immature team, for example, let's use baseball as an example. If you've got an immature team, the way you know you have an immature team, if you're coaching that team, is how do they respond to adversity? If they go into a game, right, in the bottom of the first, they're already down 10 nothing and they're fighting at each other and they're telling each other man can't you hit man can't you feel can't you catch the ball right and they're jawing at the coach and they're you know got all kind of stuff to say and they're like you know shaking their fists at each other and they're at each other's throat because they're down 10 nothing in the first right that is a pretty good uh, pretty good indicator that you have a very immature team that is easily frustrated that is easily becomes easily disorganized that very quickly begins to look out for themselves as individuals and that very easily gets their eyes off of the end goal Now let me just say all that to say that a church is a team as well. That whenever we begin to read of this concept of church in the New Testament specifically, what we find is is that the concept of church is a collection of individuals you can't get away from that it is a collection of individuals however we don't operate solely looking to ourselves in fact we don't even operate primarily looking to ourselves but rather we operate as a collection a body the bible would say of other individuals with the common aspect of our relationship with christ And when we begin to live out our faith publicly, there are going to be difficulties that are going to come. There are going to be times whenever we get down 10 in the bottom of the first, right? There are going to be times when it seems as though, you know, we're going at battle against the culture when really we should be trying to reach the culture with the message of the gospel. There are going to be times internally whenever we go through hardship or difficulties where a church is going to begin to have to resist the temptation to go at each other rather than to begin to work together with each other. Right, And so the church, in a very real way, is also a team. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus would pray to the Father towards the close of his ministry. John chapter 17, for example, is this long, lengthy prayer that we'll read of in Scripture. And there, Jesus is praying in John chapter 17. He's praying for the Father to make us one. He would say elsewhere in the book of John that we are one flock under one shepherd, Further in John chapter 17, he would say that God would perfect us in unity. So whenever you look at our Savior, whenever you look at our Lord, for Jesus, unity within the body of believers was a, was a, it was a primary emphasis. It was something to be focused on. It was something to be worked for. It was something to be guarded. It was something to be sacrificed for in many, many ways. Because we are one body under one shepherd who have one mission, and that is to influence as salt and light this world with a message of the gospel. And so we do that collectively. We do that individually, but we do it also as a team. So here's a little takeaway, and we'll give it to you up front, and then we're going to unpack it as we begin to move through the book of Titus, chapter 3 here, the passage we're going to look at. The takeaway is this, that unity amongst believers is a team effort. Unity amongst believers and if you're part of this church ministry, this is where you come into play. Unity amongst believers is a team effort. It is a team effort in guarding it. It is a team effort in squashing those things that threaten it. It is a team effort for the sake of the reason the church exists in the first place. And that is to reach our community and to reach the world with a message of the gospel. Look at what it says here. You don't have to turn from from the uh, book of Titus. You can just kind of read with me on the overhead. But Romans chapter 12 Verse 18, look at what it says here. I love this passage of Scripture. I've used it so many different times in so many different settings. Paul writes that he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That is a verse that is directly tied to the need for unity. This is a verse that unpacks in the concept of marriage, in the context of relationships, in the context of the workplace, in the context of church and in ministry. Paul says to the the Christians in Rome, he says, as far as it depends on you. And this is why I'm I'm, I'm glad this verse is in there because God understands. And certainly Paul understood when he wrote this, that sometimes peace is not going to be experienced. Why? Because it takes two people to be at peace. That's the case in marriage, that's the case as you raise your family, that's the case in the workplace, and certainly it's the case in this in this church and in this world as well. That we have to be willing to work together as a team. It takes two people to be willing to be at peace. And Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, when you lay your head down at night, you should be able to lay your head down as a follower of Christ and to be able to say, you know what, there's not one relationship in my life that I feel like is out of place and that it's my fault. Because I have done everything that I can to be at peace with this person. However, if peace is not to be experienced, the reason you can still lay your head down at night without fretting and worrying is because you know that God understands it takes two people to be at peace. In other words, we don't want to be the instigators of disunity. We don't be the ones who have a part to play in disunity. We need to be quick to apply this passage that says, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to do my best to be in unity and at peace with every single person around me, in my marriage, in my relationships, in my workplace, in my church, and in this world. And if peace can't be had, you can still have peace because you've done everything you can to promote unity in your relationships and the lives of those around you. Now, here in the context of the book of Titus, we find that God is dealing, through Paul's letter to Titus, with an issue of disunity that's taking place here, specifically within the churches on the island of Crete. Now, you probably aren't, for many of you, you're not. Um, th- this is an out of left field for you because if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have ever been a part of church drama, the disunity edition? Right? You would probably raise your hand and say, "Oh yeah, I remember that church you know, I was in. You know, four years ago, or ten years ago, or thirty years ago, or whatever. You know, you'd be maybe quick to raise your hand. And it would be sh- it would be shocking, perhaps, to some to see the numbers of hands that would go up if I were to say, "Have you ever experienced disunity within a local group of believers called the local church? It would be shocking how many hands more than likely would go up. So you understand that the enemy loves to work through disunity. Well, this is happening 2,000 years ago. In the churches on the island of Crete, this very thing is happening. A little bit of a different context, but the way Paul deals with it is to be very, very direct. In in fact, in some ways, shockingly direct. And so let's go ahead and jump into the book of Titus, chapter 3, chapter 3. We're just going to read three verses today out of Titus. We're going to pull some other ones in as we go. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can read along with me on the overhead, but, man, snag one up out in the lobby. We've got free ones for you, and we'd love for you to have one. So chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now this is an interesting three verses to be dropped right down in the letter to Titus that Paul chooses to write. However, this letter is not without context, so this passage is not without context. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul had already had to deal with an issue Involving false teachers. There were false teachers that had come in, more than likely, he doesn't give us a lot of commentary, but more than likely, partnered with some other passages of scripture, we would expect that these were a group of people called the Judaizers. Okay, I know that may be a foreign term to some degree, but Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of, as you would expect, Jews that at times would seem to show up at all the churches where Paul was trying to have an influence. The Judaizers believed that in order to be right with God that you had to work in some of the Old Testament law to the gospel to be saved ultimately. And so I don't know that they would have disagreed with the person of Jesus or even with his deity, but they would have said, you know, in addition to Christ, you also have to follow the Old Testament law if you want to truly be saved, if you truly want to be forgiven, go into heaven and in a relationship with God. Well, that is just a a perversion of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is a gospel of grace. We come to Christ in repentance and faith. We don't work our way to him. And so the Judaizers would come and they'd begin to promote this message. And that's undoubtedly what's happening here on the church, in the churches scattered around the island of Crete. I mean, you've got a lot of churches more than likely here. This is a sizable island. And so Paul is now dealing with this. He's already dealt with them earlier in this letter in chapter 1. When he said that they had to be silenced, I mean, he used very, very strong language. They had to be dealt with. They had to be dealt with very forthrightly. They had to be silenced so that this message would not change the message of the gospel. And so here again, it seems as though in chapter three now, he's coming back and he's even stronger in his language. He goes at these false teachers again. Now, here's the thing. Paul and and Titus had both dealt with this before. And you may not realize this, but Galatians helps us to understand. So look on the overhead, this particular passage of Scripture, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 5. And again, this is an example of how Paul and Titus had already had to deal with this very issue previously. So Titus is not, you know, he he understands what's going on here. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, he says, After an interval of 14 years, this is after he came to Christ, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Here was the issue. He says, but not even Titus who was with me, even though he was a Greek, see, Titus was not, Titus was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. Even though he was Greek, even Titus was, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. Here's what the Judaizers would say. If you read the Old Testament, you understand that God had given this, a a mark to to emphasize his covenant with his people, the Jewish people, and this mark was circumcision. You read of it all through, just just about all the way through the Old Testament. Well, here we find in the New Testament setting that Titus understood that there was no step outwardly that he had to take to be right with God beyond his own repentance and faith in Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in. Who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And so Titus had already dealt with this before. He had seen how Paul dealt with it. He had seen that Paul stood firmly on the gospel to where nothing could take the place of the gospel. And so it's in that context then that we read Paul's words to Titus. Let's go back again to verse 9. Paul says in verse 9, he uses the word avoid. What does he say to avoid? He says avoid foolish controversies, and all these would be in the, in the context of arguing over these things. Avoid controversies about genealogies, avoid strife and disputes about the law. Here's, here's kind of what I, what I equate this to to help understand. A lot of you are on social media, right? Those of you that aren't, you live in this world. Okay, I think we can establish that pretty well. Uh, We just came through a political season. Hopefully, you're already aware of that as well. So, we just came through a political season a few months ago. And uh, imagine back during kind of the whole election thing, all right? You've got two different candidates, you know, one on one side, one on the other side, and you've got a whole lot of conversation going on in this world about both of them. You got people sitting around the round table at Krispy Kreme, and they're arguing, what about what she said? What about what he said? Facebook's just lighting up like it doesn't happen anymore like this, right? And people are just sharing all their controversies. Let me just ask a question. Let's go back and just ask. So assuming, let's just say for the sake of argument, that you're one of those who you just lit up social media, you just had all kinds of nasty things to say about one or the other. Let me just ask, how much really of an effect did all that have? All those conversations around the dinner table, getting in arguments with your family members and your friends, right, and all the strife that went along with that, and you're trying to argue this particular law or that particular position, how much should that really change? And I'm going to ask you this other question. Why don't you just run for office, right, and just change it from the inside, right, if you're one of those people? You understand, we understand in the, in the whole scope of our own polit- you know, political system, right, that a bunch of arguing over this and that and wrangling over this and that, it doesn't accomplish anything it didn't accomplish not one single thing and in the same way in a sense paul is saying to the believers there through this letter to titus he's saying just of what you're you're going to have people coming and he's not saying don't stand for the truth He's saying that when you've communicated the truth and yet they won't know part of the truth, he says you've got to be sure that you don't get pulled away from the main thing and that is that people are dying without a relationship with Christ and they're spending eternity in hell separated from God while you're wrangling and arguing and in, in the midst of strife over all these peripheral issues that don't even really relate to the gospel. He says, stand for truth, but as it relates, it's, uh, he's going to deal with the people who spread falsehood in just a second, the next verse. But he says, as for your involvement in falsehood, he says, just avoid all of that. And it's like he said, just go tell people about Jesus. Live a life of salt and light. Live above the fray, right? Kind of rise above all the arguing and just live a life that puts Christ on display. And don't get sucked into the middle of all that other stuff. Stand for truth. But avoid the controversies, the genealogies, the strife, the disputes about the law. Why? Because they are unprofitable. They're not going to accomplish anything. It's just worthless. So having dealt then with the controversies themselves, Paul shifts gears and he deals with the ones who are stirring the pot, the ones who are instigating the controversy. Now here's here's where we we need to be mindful of something. The context of these three verses is in the context of false teachers. However, in verse 10, Paul doesn't specify these words in verse 10 just to false teachers. It seems as though he is broadening his words to anyone within the body of believers, to anyone within the body of Christ, to anyone within the local church. And he says in verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. That is, a, that is right smack in your face, isn't it? You know, you'd almost think, well, Paul, I mean, come on, I thought we were supposed to be gentle and peaceable and loving and unconditionally loving. Paul would say, absolutely. I've wrote about those things elsewhere. But here in this context, if you've got a person who is factious? The definition of that is one who who uh, a faction is a small organized group of dissenting people. Organized meaning there's a lot going on behind the scenes and under the surface. He said, if you've got a faction within the body of Christ, and you know who the person is that is instigating that faction, and it is taking away from ministry, and it is taking away from evangelism, and it is taking away from unity. He said that there is a response that has to come. You have to warn them once, and you warn them twice. And if they still are bent on creating disunity, then ultimately they need to be pushed aside. What does that say about God's view on unity within the body of believers? I mean, none of us wrote this. God wrote this. (laughs) What does that say about where God places unity Again, after Jesus himself prayed in John 17, we are one flock under one shepherd. Father, perfect them in unity. What does that say about one who is absolutely bent against unity within the body of Christ? It doesn't say anything about disagreements. There's a place where disagreements can be healthy, actually. I mean, you and your family, right, you have disagreements. There's a way to handle that. You know, you sit down and you talk it out and you come to terms and you give a hug, right? And you move on and you begin to apply the things that, that you've just discussed and talked about. I mean, th- this isn't talking about disagreement. This isn't saying don't ever disagree with a pastor. It's not saying that at all. You know, there's a place for disagreement. We all have blind spots. And, and I would certainly hope that any pastor would be willing to listen and would even welcome disagreement over certain issues. I, I would hope that would be the, the, the climate of this church and every single church because, again, we are a team. We're not just individuals. This is not talking about disagreements. Nowhere does it say, do not bring up anything with which you disagree. It is speaking about the ones who go behind the scenes. They go under the surface, and they begin to maybe put their twist to things that they disagree with. And they begin to kind of get a little collection of people around them, and they come over here, and they say, hey, let me just give you this little version of what's happening. And then they come over to this place, and they say, let me give you my version of what's going on over here. Nowhere are the ones they disagree with able to actually explain themselves or defend themselves. They've not been invited into the conversation, but you've got all these little pockets of conversations and one person stirring the pot or maybe a collection, a small group of people kind of stirring the pot. And what's happening is disunity is being threatened, unity is being hindered, and the advancement of the gospel is ultimately being slowed down in the process as well. That's why Paul says, (laughs) have nothing to do with the controversies. Just step outside of those conversations. But as for the one who's stirring the pot, for the one who's leading the factions, right, in the body of Christ, he says that person needs to be warned once and twice and then ultimately rejected. Have nothing to do with them would be the rendering of that particular passage of Scripture. I remember years ago when I first started here, there was a sizable church. Two hundred miles from here, I guess. Not even that. Sizable congregation, a mega church in another state. And they there was a website, there was a blog that you could go to, and there was one person who absolutely trashed the leadership, the staff, that church under the title of being a watchdog. And yet he operated anonymously. How on earth does that help to promote and to further the advancement of the gospel? How on earth does that ultimately help a church to be who God has created them to be? There would be a much better way to handle disagreement than that. The time came ultimately where it was determined who that person was, and they actually filed a lawsuit because they had been found out. (laughs) Kind of interesting. How much better would it have been to just follow Paul's words for one who obviously did not want unity within the body of Christ, to just warn them once, warn them twice, if they could have known who it was and just have nothing to do with them. See, God understands the threat to unity. He understands the, the dangers that come whenever disunity begins to reign. Look at what he says in verse 11. Speaking of the person who would stir the pot, who would create these factions, Verse 11, knowing that such a man is perverted, that simply means that from a position of truth, he has gone his own separate way, is sinning and being self-condemned. Tom Rainer wrote an article some time back about the things that lead to disunity within the body of Christ, within the church. It was a lengthy article. He He listed 14 key reasons, I'm just going to pull out a few real quickly. These aren't on slides at all, but of the 14 reasons that Tom Rainer, who studies church ministry all the time, uh, of these 14 key reasons, I think these five are especially ones to be mindful of for us as believers and especially in the context of this ministry as well. One specific uh, issue that often leads to disunity, he lists, are self-serving church members. You know, we've talked a lot recently, and Titus helps us to see this, that there are those who are parts of local churches scattered all over this country, all over the world, really who understand because of their maturity in Christ that they are a part of a church because they are part of a team to get the message out to those who need to hear. They're there to be salt and to be light. They are missionaries in a sense. We could go that far and say they're missionaries on mission, representative of Jesus Christ in this world. And as church members, they are even more importantly, his representatives in this world where they go. But then there are those who only see church membership really as kind of their entrance to the country club you know, and historically through the years this number has grown more and more and more to where the church is just kind of likened for those people as just another club that they are part of all the other clubs they are part of they pay their dues and the club minister or the club caters to them and for those individuals they see church much the same They come and the church's role, the church's reason for existence is to cater to me. I want what I desire. I want my kind of music. I want my kind of preaching. I want the rooms to look the way I want them to be. And I want to study the things that I feel like are going to be most important. And the church becomes somewhat of a kind of a club mentality. Well, what happens is, is whenever a church begins to gravitate in that direction to where the bulk of their people begin to only see the church as serving themselves, it is not long before, ultimately, before disunity will begin to erupt. Because there's going to be someone or some group of people that don't like what's being done. It may be reaching many with the gospel. The church may be healthier because of it. The church may be, be uh, expanding in a way that God desires. And yet it rattles their cage because they are more self-serving than they are others serving. And what happens is that as a result of that self-serving mentality, it's that very reason that ultimately leads to disunity within the church. Which hinders the mission which God has called it to. A second thing that Rainer mentions in his article is gossip. Gossip. It's interesting that he would put that. The Old Testament has a lot to say, Proverbs especially, about gossip. You don't see it dealt with specifically so much in the New Testament as pointedly as in the book of Proverbs, and yet you see the effects of it in the New Testament because Paul, on occasion, would have to deal with this issue of disunity, and there were times when it would be because of people saying things that simply were not true. Or maybe they were saying things that there that was that, that were true, and yet it wasn't in a spirit of trying to make things better, or in a spirit of reconciling. It was with the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit. Paul says in the book of Titus that there was disunity that had to be dealt with in churches all over today. It is often gossip where things are being spread without the benefit of the person being talked about there to represent themselves where it's that gossip that threatens the very unity of the body of Christ. For some of you, you've been victims of that, right? And sadly, perhaps for some, maybe ones that have been involved from the other side. Regardless, it is a threat to unity. A third reason that Rainer mentions as an influencer of disunity within the church is a lack of prayer. Lack of prayer. Whether that's an organized prayer service, so to speak, or whether that is a group of believers specifically they are at a place in their Christian walk where they understand the necessity of prayer, it really doesn't matter. Prayer has to be the engine that runs the ministry through the local church. And where prayer is lacking, oftentimes it's prayer that shows our dependence upon the Lord, right? And a lack of prayer shows our self-sufficiency before the Lord. When I pray and I pray fervently, that's saying to God, Lord, I can't do this, I can't handle this, I can't accomplish this, God, I'm praying to you, would you please do this for me? But when I fail to pray, when I choose not to pray, what that is also communicating is, God, I don't need you, I can handle this myself. It is then not long before I start trying to steer the ministry, or I, as a Christian, not me as pastor, me as a Christian, it's not long then if I'm not praying where I begin to try to do everything in my own way, and the focus is now on me rather than on him. If something goes a direction that I don't especially appreciate, or I think, Should be better, then I'm going to quickly become one of those self serving church members, right? And I'm going to be the next one to stir the pot of disunity. And oftentimes it all goes back to a lack of prayer. Fourth thing that Rainer mentions is adopting the hypercritical spirit of the culture. You realize, right, that we live in a culture that is very quick to be critical of others. Do you understand this? All right. I listen to a lot of sports radio when I'm driving. I don't know. Is that sinful? We got Christian radio stations. I listen to ESPN radio a lot of times. So um, when I listen to that, uh, or if you watch it on television, right, you watch all, you know, part of the interruption or a lot of these different shows on ESPN, you know, they are built, right? They are built. People watch because an argument's gonna break out, right? They're built on that. I mean, Fox News, CNN, I mean, they all, you know, they all kind of jump into that pot where they just are very, very hyper critical. You can't say one little thing without it being taken out of context. And and a, and a whole big story be blown up around it when really it was there was nothing to even talk about I mean, we live in a very hypercritical culture, and whenever that culture begins to work into the body of Christ, where we are quick to be critical rather than quick to forgive, where we are quick to be be in conversation about someone else rather than actually going to them and initiating conversation with them, when that cultural perspective of being hypercritical seeps into the body of Christ, it is not long, it is not long at all before unity ultimately gets threatened. And before disunity begins to rear its ugly head. A fifth one that he mentions, and I'll be done here, a fifth reason for disunity in the local church are power groups. Power groups. Man, oh man, I have heard stories through the years. Thankfully, um, again, here this has not been an issue. Maybe my head was in the sand, but I've never sensed this as an issue here for for all these years. But in many other churches, I'm telling you, man, power groups, you got families that have been in the church forever, right? And they're the ones who kind of call the shots or run the show. Uh, I don't remember anywhere in Scripture where it says the families that have been there the longest are the ones who are responsible for leadership. Nowhere in the Bible does it say whoever gives the most are the ones responsible for leadership. Nowhere in the Bible does it say the charter members are the ones responsible for leadership. Nowhere in here does it say those who uh, ultimately have, um, you know, have the, the greatest amount of influence are the ones in leadership. No, they're the ones. The leaders are the ones that God calls to leadership. Yeah, those are the ones in leadership. The power groups are not the ones who are in leadership. They may think they are. And in churches scattered far and wide, it, again, it can be a collection of those folks, those who think they have power because of how much they give or because of how long they've been there, because of their positions of service. You know what? God is not impressed because, uh, because uh, you know, I'm a pastor or because someone has a staff title or because someone is a, you know, a small group Bible study leader. God is not impressed by those things. I mean, he's God. It's really hard to impress someone when they're God okay, you know, God is not oppressed by those things, and yet for some reason we put all the emphasis on those things in all the wrong ways. The only power any of us have, uh, me, any of our staff, you included as a Christian, the only power we have is the power of our influence. That is the only power any of us have. The only authority that we have is the authority of being image bearers of God and representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only authority that we have, Right? It's not because of any other thing. And yet when we begin to think that we bring everything that's needed to the table, that oftentimes is the first step towards disunity. Because we gravitate towards our way instead of God's way. And so Paul says to Titus, Titus in the context of ministry, you've got to deal with those who are false teachers and don't get pulled into their controversy. Speak the truth boldly. Stand firmly in the gospel. And for those that are stirring the pot, even if they may be on the inside, if they have no desire to follow the Lord's way or to follow in the way of truth, warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Paul would write elsewhere in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. We'll begin to close. In a whole separate letter to a whole different person, Timothy, in a whole different church context in Ephesus. He says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, and having been held captive by him to do his will. Chapter 2, verse 14, in that same chapter, he says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Unity really is that important. And though God has blessed us with that here for a long, long time, the enemy never sleeps. He always seeks to rear his head. And for those that are impacted by disunity, whether a small group or larger, Ultimately, it pulls them away from closeness to God. It ultimately slows them down in their Christian maturity. And it costs in ways that we can't possibly see on this side. Four questions I want to ask as we close. Question number one, ask yourself, am I right now currently contributing to or taking away from the unity of First Baptist Church of the Islands? Am I a contributor to that unity or do I take away from it? Number two, how often do I speak negatively of others or the ministry without those other people being there to defend themselves? Number three, how can I fix the damage that I may have caused by creating disunity? And then number four, am I willing to be the stopgap to others' attempts to discredit or bring disunity? In other words, I had a man tell me 20 years ago in ministry, he said the way he does this, when someone comes and they say, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? He says, you know, I just ask them then on the spot, before you say anything, is it okay for me if I let them know that you and I have talked? And when they say, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to let them know that I've told you this, then he just says, well, I don't really desire to hear. That's how you end all of the chatter and all of the talk that brings about disunity. It's to say, just like Paul said to Titus, you know what, I'm going to have nothing to do with that. I'm going to step outside the circle. And if you're not willing for me to go to the person that you're about to talk about without them here to defend themselves, then I just simply really don't need to hear. Again, unity is that important. It's a team effort. Why does God count it so high? Because the whole reason Jesus came and died and rose in the first place, is to bring people into unity in a relationship with God. It's all about the gospel. If you've never given your life to Jesus, hey, what a great, there, there is no greater thought, what greater thought exists than knowing that I am in unity with my Father, with God who made me. And that can be yours if you choose to turn from sin and to place your faith in Jesus. If you've done that, hey, you've got a role to play. You're part of this ministry to guard the unity and to advance the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sessions like this in the book of Titus. Lord, ones that you you never go to a revival service and hear this passage preached. God, it's not one that really stirs a lot of emotion necessarily. But there was a reason Paul included these three verses in that letter. And it was because of the necessity of the instruction for those churches in Crete. Lord, unity is that big of a deal to you and ministry and witness can be frustrated and tarnished whenever disunity exists. Sadly for many of us here, Lord, we can remember stories of ministries and churches where disunity reigned. Maybe it was in the context of just a constant tension that was there. Maybe there were business meetings and secret meetings and uh, gossip and conversations that existed. But Lord, sadly, most Christians can relate to that in some way. God, we thank you that you are for unity. And you're for unity because it it reflects the truth of the gospel, that you're, you are at work in this world of bringing people into peace with you. Lord, how can we have that kind of a witness when we can't even be at peace with each other? And so, Lord, help us to do our part in being a part of the team that creates unity and that puts you on display. And God, for those today that have never given their lives to Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would be very quick where they sit to turn from their sin and to invite the Lord who came for them already to come in and forgive and take over. And so bless our decisions, we pray, and we thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name.